Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the latest reflection for this Lent season at Harrow Baptist Church. A few weeks back, just before the announcement from the government that caused us to stop meeting as a church for a while, I was preaching on the seven last words of Jesus. And on the last Sunday we were together, I didn't preach the sermon I had written for that Sunday. Instead, I reflected a little bit on how we were all feeling about coronavirus and shared a few words from Psalm 46. So that means that in our sermon series on the seven last words of Jesus, we had one missing. The promise to the thief on the cross when Jesus said, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Well, I thought that today I would take this chance to share with you what I would have said that day, uh, that sermon for that day. And I hope that you will be blessed by it. So before we dive in, some words from Luke chapter 23. The people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, Let him save himself if he's the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your words which were spoken to us and which echoed down through the years. May they speak to us as gospel once more. In Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the first time I was sat by someone's deathbed as a minister. I was just a few months into the training, so totally new to the job, and it was a lady called Hilda. And Hilda was in her 90s and had been pretty much part of our local church for her entire adult life. But shortly after I started, she was diagnosed with an aggressive terminal cancer, and she'd been told she had weeks to live. And now that time had come. There were a few of us with her in the room in the hospice. Hilda was mostly unconscious, occasionally stirring, maybe groaning, but basically asleep. And then, all of a sudden, she opened her eyes really wide, 
looked across the room straight at me and said one word very clearly. Andrew. And it kind of took me by surprise because Hilda hadn't been able to remember my name on any of the other occasions I'd visited her in the previous few months. But I crossed the room, sat on the bed, took her hand and said, Hilda, when you wake up from this, there are going to be so many people who are just so delighted to see you and will be waiting to meet you because of the difference you made to them. And then I added, and another one waiting to see you will be Jesus. Hilda sighed. She laid her head back on her pillow. She, she never stirred again. About 20 minutes, half an hour later, she drifted away. And I pray I was right about what she then experienced. I believe I was. But during Lent, we are reflecting on the words Jesus spoke from the cross. Across our four Gospels, we have seven words or sayings made by Jesus in those last hours on what we have come to call Good Friday. The first one was addressed to God. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The second was to one of those who hung on the cross beside him. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Crucifixion was designed to kill someone with the maximum amount of pain over a maximum amount of time with the maximum amount of humiliation. It was conducted very publicly so that everyone could see what was happening and to those who challenged the authority of the Roman rulers. And Jesus' crucifixion was no different. It was carried out in full view of the people of Jerusalem. Above his head on the cross was there a sign saying, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And John's Gospel tells us it was written in Hebrew and Latin and Greek. That way everyone could know precisely what was said on that sign. And it got the desired effect. As Jesus hung there, he was mocked by those who came by. Jewish leaders jeered at him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Messiah whom God has chosen. And the soldiers responsible for his execution also mocked him. They offered him cheap wine and said, save yourself if you're the king of the Jews. But he's not there alone. Two other men whom Luke tells us were criminals had been led out to be crucified. They're sometimes described as thieves or robbers or bandits. But you shouldn't get the idea that these are in any sense petty criminals. Rome just, they didn't just crucify anyone. These were pretty bad guys. We would probably have considered them terrorists. And one of them is going down swinging. He looks across at that guy on the middle cross. He sees the sign above him saying, this is the king of the Jews and starts hurling insults at him. Huh, Messiah, are you? If so, well, save yourself on us. The other, however, approaches it very differently. He looks across at the first guy and says, do you not fear God? 
You received the same sentence he did. However, we're getting what we deserve. This guy's done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and says, Remember me, Jesus, when you come as king. And in response, Jesus offers those second words from the cross. I promise you that today you will be with me in paradise. What is the guy asking? And what is Jesus promising? Are Jesus' words from the cross pretty much like the words I offered to Hilda, seeking to offer some hope and comfort in the darkest of situation? Albeit with the greater certainty of one who knew? Or is there more going on here? And why does Luke record them? Is it just for completeness? Uh, or were these words just for the thief? Or is there something here for us? The penitent thief on the cross has in legend stirred the imagination in different accounts he's called Dismas or Demas or Dumachus. One legend has him as a Judean Robin Hood who robbed the rich to give to the poor. Of course we don't really know how much of any of the legends are true. And it's interesting he's called the penitent thief but he actually doesn't repent of anything. In many ways, he takes what comes to him as an occupational hazard. That's what you get when you mess with Rome. So it's just a cry of a desperate man. But there is more to this request than simply asking Jesus to think about him, to bring him to mind in heaven. It implies taking some action to rescue him. There's another Bible story where we encounter a similar idea. It's way back in the book of Genesis, in the story of Joseph, the one with the famous Technicolor dream coat. Joseph has been sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt and he's sold to a guy called Potiphar. But Potiphar's wife takes a bit of a shine to Joseph and decides she wants to seduce him. But when Joseph spurns her advances, she turns on him and she accuses him of rape. And Joseph is thrown into prison. And there he meets a baker and a butler from Pharaoh's court. And then one night they both have dreams. And Joseph interprets those dreams. And he says to the butler that, what, that there's going to be a good outcome for him. It's not so good for the baker. But Joseph's predictions come true. The butler is returned to his job. And as the butler is released, Pharaoh, or Joseph says to him, when you get out and start working for Pharaoh again, remember me. Joseph isn't asking him once in a while to go, oh yeah, do you remember that nice fellow I met in prison? He's asking him to do something, to help him, to deliver him. And that's what the thief is asking of Jesus. It's not just a memory. It's take action. Do something for me. It's more like me saying to you that if you win the Euro Millions lottery, remember who your friends are. 
throughout his life. The oddest of people have had insight into who Jesus is. Those who knew their Bibles inside out and should have known better failed to recognise anything about Jesus. Whilst he had to keep telling the demon-possessed people to shut up lest they reveal his identity. And somehow in the midst of it all, it's as if there is this one guy who gets an insight that there's something more going on here. That for Jesus there is something beyond this. What we don't know he has in mind. We, we don't know what he has in mind. But something. And that's what he's reaching out for. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But what about Jesus' response? Today you will be with me in paradise. I wonder what your idea of paradise is. If you did a Google search on the word paradise, pretty much all the pictures look very similar. They're all tropical beaches beside gently lapping seas. There's a reason that the wonderful death in paradise is not set in this country. And the word in religious circles often gets bound up with another one. Heaven. And I don't know what your idea of heaven is like. I remember a guy called Norman who used to worship in our church until he moved away. And Norman used to always try to wind me up. He used to always try to shock me and he always did it with a naughty little glint in his eye. And I remember one of the times he tried to do it just after he met me was when he talked about images of heaven. And he says, you know, all those images with loads of people standing around, singing and dressed in white. It all just sounded so dull to him. And I was reminded of a bit in one of the Adrian Plass books where he thinks in that way. He talks about heaven being like a Sunday service which goes on forever and ever. And it might amaze you to think that this idea doesn't really appeal to Adrian Plass. How could anyone not want that? Anyway, he mentions this to a monk who responds by asking, well, what do you really love? And rather too quickly, Adrian replies, cricket, before thinking, I really ought to have said something a little more gaudy. But the monk just replies, then Adrian, for you, heaven will have to be something even better than scoring a century against the Aussies at Lords. And I remember a while back another minister talking to me about how people talk about heaven, about what they think it'll be like and who will be there and so on. And normally they'll talk about being reunited with loved ones, maybe even reunited with their pets. They'll have all sorts of other pictures and they're all really good things. But then he said something else about something that was so often missing. Even amongst Christians, he says, it's amazingly rare for people to mention God and or Jesus being there. 
And maybe we can give people the benefit of the doubt and say, well, let's take it for granted that Jesus is going to be there. But actually, without Jesus, there is no heaven. There is no paradise. Certainly not as the Bible describes it. Because if you want a definition of paradise or heaven based on these words, it's about being where Jesus is. It's where we are with Jesus. In the first century world of Jesus, the word paradise had a couple of different meanings, but they pointed in a similar direction. Paradise was a word which they had borrowed and brought back with them from the Persian world where they'd been in exile. It was a word for a walled garden, particularly one which belonged to the king. And to be invited to walk with the king in paradise was a special honour. It was being invited to walk with him in his garden. The other idea was quite similar. In fact, they are probably linked. It echoed back to the primal story of the Garden of Eden, which was a paradise which had been lost in the fall, but which God had promised to restore. It was about a relationship which had been lost being restored. Because Eden was a story of a couple walking with God in the Garden of Eden. And that was what they lost in the fall. And so that was what paradise had come to mean. The relationship with God for which we were created. Which had been lost. Being restored to us. And that was what Jesus was offering to the thief on the cross. Not just pie in the sky, but a restored relationship with his creator. It was quite shocking who Jesus was offering this to. But then, that's how it always was with Jesus. Jesus is simply dying as he lived. Jesus had always celebrated with the wrong people. He had offered peace and hope to all the wrong people. He had warned all the wrong people about judgment. And now here on the cross, he's offering new hope, restored to relationship. Not to the righteous, but to a dying thief. To someone who, by his own admission, is getting exactly what he deserved. But that's what Jesus was always about. Seeking and saving the lost. Not calling the righteous, but sinners. A couple of the Gospels mention James and John, or their mother, making a special request of Jesus. And that, that when he comes to his kingdom, they would have the special honour of being on his right and his left. And Jesus tells them he could not offer them that. But he does offer it to one who hangs with him on the cross. But why has this been handed down to us? Is it just a nice story about a guy whom God helped? Or is there something here for us? 
One of the challenges of receiving forgiveness is recognising those times when we need it. Oh yeah, yeah, we know there's stuff we get wrong, but chances are we never know the full extent of it or the damage that we cause. There are times when we act with the best of intentions but still make the wrong choice. There are times when we are simply unaware of the impact our choices are having. And that was why Jesus cried, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Because if Jesus waits until eternity for us to fully grasp the impact of all that we have done, he will be waiting for all eternity. But here we see how wide and far that forgiveness goes. We see how wide God's mercy really is. For this guy really has nothing to offer Jesus. As he hangs on that cross, he knows his fate is simply the consequence of his choices. In his own words, he is getting what he deserves. He has nothing to offer Jesus but his desperation. But when he offers that to Jesus, he finds that's all Jesus needs from him. He was created for relationship with God. And when he turns to Jesus, he finds that God longs to restore him to that relationship. Whatever he's done, however late in the day, he's left it. And perhaps that's the message of the penitent thief for us. That we are created for relationship with God. And whoever we are and whatever we've done, however far we think we've gone, God waits to welcome us back into relationship. We are already forgiven. Even before we ask. The only question is will we be reconciled to God? Because the only barrier is on our side. So it's not just a message about pie in the sky when you die. It's not just about tomorrow. It's about today. Today you will be with me in paradise. Yes, it's a relationship which will reach its fulfilment when we see Jesus. Just as I promised Hilda. But it's a relationship we enter into now. It's a relationship that we don't just pick up in the next life. We take it into the next life. And we carry it with us and not even death is able to separate us from that love. In his book, Thank God It's Friday, the writer Walter Willimon speaks of talking with an elderly woman towards the end of her life. And he asks her how she feels. Is she anxious? Is she regretful? Is she afraid? And she replies, no, I'm not afraid. And he suggests, well, it must be a comfort to you to have lived a good life. And she responds, well, actually, my main comfort is that soon I will get to be with Jesus. And he suggests that it was such a deep comfort because in a deep sense, she already was with Jesus. She had lived every day with him. That life had been a period 
of training for paradise. Not in the sense of a sun-kissed beach perhaps, but an assurance that whatever we face, we are not alone. That whatever we have done, we are loved. By one who will never leave us, nor forsake us. And even when all we have to offer is our desperation, he's not looking for us to offer him anything at all. We are made for relationship. And if we'll let him, Jesus promises to be with us, to live with us in that relationship, so that whatever we face, he will never leave us alone. That nothing will separate us from his love. Grace and peace be with you. Amen.